Woods Edge, it's uh, a privilege to be with you as always, though weird to be standing here and speaking to a camera rather than getting to lay my eyes on you. Uh, this is an odd season for us all. And uh, in a season like this, we are a people that need to hear from God, are we not? And so even now, while separated from distance, spread out all across the city, we come together to sit under the authority of God's word with confidence that he can restore strength and clarity and direction in a season where things just feel upside down. The last few times I've been with you, I've shared with you from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I intend to do the same this morning, and because, quite frankly, we need the voice of wisdom as much as we ever have. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we have the opportunity to hear from someone that is known as the teacher or the preacher in most English translations. In the Hebrew, it's the Kohelet, the assembler of people, the one who speaks with wisdom. And if you've, if you've been here in the past when, when I've been sharing from Ecclesiastes, I refer to him as the farmer's insurance guy. He knows a few things because he's seen a few things. And in a season like the one we're in, we need a voice like that. We need God's voice speaking through a wise mouthpiece that says, I've seen a few things and I can speak to these things if you'll sit and prioritize my voice. You see, today we're going to jump into Ecclesiastes in chapter 7, and we're going to have the voice of wisdom speak to us about how do we respond in seasons of, of sorrow, of confusion, of loss, of disappointment. And if we're all honest, we're tempted to arrange our lives in such a way that we avoid and sidestep sorrow and disappointment and loss and longing as much as possible. We want to sidestep it and avoid it. We try to orchestrate our lives to create paradise on earth, if we're honest. How might we maximize our pleasure, minimize our loss and our sorrow? This is the good life. Yet, the voice of wisdom in this text is going to step in and say some really counterintuitive things. He's going to remind us what in many ways a season like we're, we're in right now is forcefully teaching us. He's going to remind us that the capacity to create paradise under the sun is a fool's errand. The attempt to try to construct paradise east of Eden in a broken world where we currently live is folly. And in fact, this Kohelet is going to offer an invitation to us this morning. He's going to invite us to stop running from sorrow and to learn from it. To stop straining and struggling to outrun the shadow of death, the reality of loss, the, the, the pain of disappointment. He's going to say, stop running from it. Because that shadow is always nipping at your heels. Pause, turn, look it in the eye and begin to learn from it. He's going to invite us to adopt sorrow as our tutor this morning. In hopes that what we would begin to experience is some rest in a restless world. Tommy Nelson, in a book that he wrote about Ecclesiastes, summarized uh, chapters 6 and 7, where we find ourselves in the midst of this morning. He said this, 
He doesn't want only to bless us. God does not want only to bless us. He wants to change us. He doesn't just want your smiles and your laughter. He wants your heart. He wants us to grow up, and he wants us to look like Jesus. Said another way, A.W. Tozer said, God cannot use a man until he hurts him deeply. Now what Tozer is saying there is not that God is cruel and wants us to be in pain, but he realizes this. We will cling to this world and we will demand it to give us what it cannot give until we are wounded and begin to realize it won't deliver. You see, the invitation this morning is to begin to learn from sorrow rather than running from it. I will just, as a diagnostic question that will prepare us to dive into this text, let me ask, let me ask you one question. Where this morning are you most restless and dissatisfied? Where are you most restless and dissatisfied? Thinking, I will be satisfied, I will be content when, fill in the blank, when my retirement reaches this number, when things uh, establish normalcy in this way, when my family feels and looks this way, when I, when I find a spouse, when I get over the hump, when I have this job title, when I, you see, the Kohelet's gonna speak right into the moment of, of restlessness, of disappointment, of struggle. And he says, bring that to mind. Take that thing and bring it into the space. And now let's examine what wisdom would say about that. And so, Please come with me on this journey to finding rest for weary souls that have been striving to create paradise under the sun. Let's stop trying to outrun sorrow and let's learn from it together. So with that being said, would you turn your attention with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first two verses for us as, as we get started. And as I do, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. He says that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We would be really wise to pay attention. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 1, it says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Well, as the wisdom teacher begins to plunge in, we hear the counterintuitive wisdom that's being provided for us. And what we're going to trace out in, these chapter, in this chapter are five lessons that we can learn from sorrow if we'll adopt it as our tutor. The first lesson that we find in these first two verses is this. We will finally find some perspective we will finally find some perspective. Did you hear it there? That God, God says through his, his servant in Ecclesiastes 7, a good name is better than precious ointment. God is more concerned about our character than our comfort. He's saying a good name, a good reputation, that you would be a, a person of character and integrity. This is more valuable to God than the ointments of celebration and of joy. He's saying, I am more concerned about your character than your comfort and your ease. Said another way, 
if we let the scriptures teach us what's most important and lay a baseline for what's true in the world, we would come away with this conclusion. Prosperity is not always a good thing. And adversity is not always a bad thing. Now, I don't know about you, but I live like that is not true. God's saying that prosperity is not always a good thing. Adversity is not always a bad thing. Yet I go, well, I have arranged my life believing the opposite. And here in this text, what he's saying is, let me tell you, a good name, a good reputation is better than your comfort. The day of death is better than the day of birth. The house of mourning better than the house of feasting. What is it that he's saying here? He's saying the house of mourning sobers us. Going to the funeral of a beloved saint snaps us into awareness of the reality in which we live, that death's shadow is coming for all of us. It's a baseline of what it means to be alive. And he's saying when we begin to realize this, we'll live with an awareness of what's truly most important. The struggle is that oftentimes our scorecard is just wrong. Our scorecard is broken. Think about it like this. Imagine that in the fall that we can go to a football game. Let's just imagine that. We're at a football game and we're looking at the scoreboard and we're trying to make sense of the scoreboard versus the game that we're watching because the scoreboard says 84 to 12. But that doesn't line up with what we've seen happen on the field. And you lean over to someone and say, I'm very confused. Can you help me understand what's going on with the scoreboard? And they say, oh yeah, yeah. The scoreboard is not keeping track of points. It's keeping track of chest bumps. And you say, I, I don't understand. And then a player jumps off the field and hits himself twice. And you see it goes up. It's 86 to 12 now. You see that? They're really running away with this one. And you say, I, I'm struggling to follow because the scoreboard doesn't actually align with the win. You see, that game will be endlessly confusing and the scoreboard will not be helpful because it doesn't align with what it actually means to win. Brothers and sisters, hear me. The scoreboard for our life is to look like Jesus. And our lives will not make sense if we go around thinking what life is really about is our ointments and our prosperity. When God's going, no, 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 listen, 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 come into the house of mourning with me and learn something. You'll start to have perspective about what I value most, about what it means to be my child. Come with me on this journey and begin to understand and to learn perspective. You see, we need to have sorrow be our tutor if we're going to learn perspective. But that's not all. If we keep looking in verse 3, we realize that it's not that God is unconcerned with our gladness. The second thing that we're going to learn is, is not just perspective, but we're going to learn about real gladness. God is concerned about our gladness. He just wants it to be the real thing. Look back in verse 3 with me. It says this. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. What a curious statement. Counterintuitive, is it not? Quite frankly, when I read verse 3, my first response is, nope, no. Sadness of face does not make the heart glad. I've had plenty of moments with sadness of face, and, and I just have to be honest, it, it doesn't feel like my heart is bubbling over with gladness in moments of loss and heartache. So what is it that the Kohelet is saying? 
Cornell West professor from Harvard University recently made this really interesting observation. He said, listen, Socrates, Socrates never cried. And Jesus and the text that we have of him, he never laughed. He says, isn't this interesting? Socrates, the hallmark of Western thought and what it means to be wise and together was was all about self-mastery and detachment. And in the fact, in the moment when Socrates was about to be put to death, he demanded that his wife be taken away from him because her tears were a display of weakness and they were bothering him. He said, take the emotion away from me because real wisdom is marked by self-mastery and detachment. But, says West, then we have against that backdrop this one we call Jesus. This one we call Jesus who who weeps over Jerusalem and says, like a mother hen, I would have gathered you like chicks under my wings if you just would have responded. And who went to his friend Lazarus' funeral and wept tears of brokenness and sadness as he looked at the suffering of his people. Why is it that Socrates never cried and Jesus is never recorded as laughing? The reason is because real gladness comes from connection, from love, not detachment, not self-mastery and coldness. You see, real gladness comes from connection and from love. And let me tell you, love will shred you emotionally. You will know weeping and tears if you've given your heart to another. You will. But what God is concerned about is not some fickle emotion of happiness that's here one moment and gone the next because circumstances can speak to it. He's talking about real gladness, the sort of real gladness that's marked by the deep yearning of a heart that has been given to others. You see, sorrow teaches us about the real thing, the real thing that persists through the tears. You see, that sort of gladness requires pain, and it can't sidestep it. You see, as we begin to learn from sorrow, we learn perspective. We learn real gladness, but that's not all. Let's look in the following verses, because because sorrow will teach us wisdom. It will teach us to be wise. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. It says this, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Do you hear it in this text that, that the, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning? That what he's, what he's helping us catch on to is this reality. That fools are always after laughter and fun. He says it's like thorns under a pot that crackle. Imagine that you've got the campfire going and you throw a pile of thorns on. What will happen is it will snap and crackle and pop. And the flames will rise up real quickly and then it's gone. Not leaving much heat or light in its wake. He says that is the laughter of fools. That's what's being packaged and sold at a bar on a Saturday night as we yell over the music and go, isn't this fun? And we cheers life. But, but what is the, the quick flame is quickly out. It's quickly gone. And he says, no, 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 let me tell you what is really lasting. He says, to be rebuked by a wise person. 
What an interesting juxtaposition. He's saying, let me tell you about real life, real wisdom. It doesn't come just with the laughter that comes over the, the, the din of the noise, but it comes through the honest counsel of a friend that will lean in and tell you the truth. Because now we're talking about real life. Now we're talking about what it means to really live a true word from a wise saint. This is wisdom. You see, sorrow begins to deliver to us the realities that that happiness is never going to deliver in the ways that we hoped. Happiness is not wrong. It's just a fickle emotion. He's inviting us into something deeper and truer. Perspective, real gladness, wisdom. Well, he doesn't stop there. Stick with me. In verses 8 and 9, he's going to paint yet one more lesson that this tutor will deliver to us. It says this. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. The fourth thing that sorrow will teach us is how to have a long spirit rather than a tall one. A long spirit rather than a tall one. That's the actual Hebrew translation in verse 8 for a patient spirit and a proud spirit. Patient spirit there is a long spirit. Proud spirit is a tall spirit. In essence, what he's saying is what we want to be is the sort of people that can endure for the long haul. That aren't upended when circumstances change, when the winds turn and they're in our face. He's saying what we want to be is the sort of people that have a long spirit that walk through pain and suffering properly through the world. He's saying the end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. You see, if you really want a picture of love, the snapshot of what love looks like in all of its beauty and its splendor, what I would What I would posit to you is that we shouldn't look at a wedding, though a wedding is a wonderful moment. I do many weddings. We've got a lot of young people at Seven Mile Road. I get to do lots and lots of weddings. I've done about 80 weddings in the last seven years. And so many times on a Saturday, I'm found standing looking at this this bride and groom who are dressed to the nines. In a sense, they're, they, they're kind of have come together as if we're all royalty here to celebrate, right? Like it's this snapshot that doesn't quite feel like real life, but it's certainly worthy of celebration. It's a beautiful moment. But that's not the snapshot of love, is it? If we're honest. This last fall, my siblings and several of my cousins and I got to get together and celebrate my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. A couple who have been through a lot together. They lost one of their children in his 20s. They've gone through difficult diagnoses, difficult things that they've weathered storms together. And as they sat there and we surrounded them and were able to speak back to them about what we see in them, there was this moment, right, where you go, that's the picture of love. Here we are nearing the end of a journey, not at the beginning, but nearing one where there's so much behind us and we say, we're still here. That's something that sorrow works down into our bones. Not just happiness and celebration, a long spirit, not just a tall spirit. A tall spirit, that's one that's easily toppled. That's why he follows it up by saying, beware, anger lodges in the heart of the fool. 
Because the tall spirit who thinks I should never suffer, everything should work as planned, the world should always be easy, the tall spirit is easily toppled because when something goes wrong in life, they stick out their lower lip and they look at God and they go, I don't deserve this. I'm going to spend the rest of my life angry because you let this thing happen to me. He says that that's a tall spirit. That's someone who's never sat at the feet of sorrow and said, teach me. How dare you? This was supposed to be paradise. What it is, is we've heaped expectations on God about life under the sun that he has told us will never pan out. Yet we put those expectations on him and then when they don't pan out, we're just angry. And he's going, would would you slow down and take a deep breath? Would you lay down your tall spirit and pick up a long one as you sit at the feet of sorrow and say, teach me. Teach me what it means to be faithful and to endure in a broken world that still has present the curse of sin. You see, if sorrow is our tutor, if longing and heartache and the shadow of death itself teaches us, we will begin to develop a long spirit and not just a tall one. Well, the fifth, the last lesson that sorrow will teach us if we will learn from it is this. We will experience a nostalgia-less now. A nostalgia-less now. Let me show you in verses 10 and 14. It says this. Say not, why were the former days better than these? I don't know about you, but I've certainly been (laughs) tempted to say those words, especially lately. Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity be joyful and the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What is the Kohelet saying here? What he's saying is this, if your rear view mirror is rose colored, you're on the path to becoming a fool. If when you look back into the past, it's always, oh, it was so good back then, and now everything's coming apart and everything's a mess. He says, if that's what you're rehearsing, you're on the way to becoming a fool. Because the truth is, in verse 14, what he's saying is there are days of prosperity and there are days of adversity, and they're both ordained from God, and the invitation is to live in the moment that God has delivered to you. Not to long for the past, not to wish away the present, but to enter into a nostalgia-less now, saying, this is the moment. Because the truth is, brothers and sisters, listen to me. This moment is the one that we've been given. This moment is the moment that eternity is touching. We are in the moment that God has gifted to us, as weird and difficult as it is, living under the the realities of a global pandemic, the, the difficulties that many of us are facing that are related to that, or maybe not even related to that. And we are so tempted to look back or look to the future and not just live in this moment that has been entrusted to us by the hand of a sovereign and loving Father. What the Kohelet is saying is this, is stop dreaming about the past or wishing away your life for the future, live this moment with God right there in the midst of it. A nostalgia-less now. He says, beware of false scoreboards. 
Beware of, of thinking about things improperly and live this moment that's been entrusted to you. You see, here's some lessons that we can learn as we start to sit at the feet of sorrow and say, teach me. Longing and loss, even the, the shadow of death itself, what we begin to learn is we, we gain perspective and we experience real gladness and wisdom and a long spirit rather than a tall one. And we are finally delivered into a nostalgia-less now, into the moment that we've been given. You see, ultimately, if these lessons find purchase in our soul, if we begin to step into this space with God right there with us, we no longer have to strain you see, all of that restlessness and that disappointment, white-knuckling life and feeling like I just got to press through and create something that's going to last. I've got to construct paradise right here in this world. I've got to get just the perfect retirement and the perfect family and the perfect structure because ultimately, underneath all of that, what we really are confessing is I don't believe God's going to deliver it all perfectly forever someday. And so I've got to get it all now. And we're white-knuckling life. And when it's threatened, we get angry or we get discouraged. We get depressed and we fight back. And what, what the wisdom teacher is saying is, would you just stop for a second? And would you peer into those shadows? Would you begin to learn the lessons that they'll teach you? And ultimately, as we turn our gaze to begin to learn from this Kohelet, we see over and beyond him the fulfillment and the great wisdom teacher himself. Jesus Christ who came. And as we see the way that he fulfills this wisdom and delivers it to our soul, what we realize is this. He was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As we turn our gaze on Jesus and we consider how to live wisely in the world, we realize that he confronted sorrow. He confronted the shadow of death itself. And in order to love us and to draw near to us, he was willing to, to struggle and work through all of this pain and sadness to secure real gladness for his people. He was willing to endure the pains and the heartache of this reality. And trying to capture my thoughts about Jesus being the fulfillment of this text, I wrote a little something. Let me read it to you. Seriously considering the darkness of death's shadow, alongside the one who was sinless and who dismantled the power of death and the schemes of man, finally produces rest. You don't have to keep hustling to create something great and that's going to last. You don't have to create paradise under the sun. You can stop white-knuckling your life. Take a deep breath. Engage the emotion of the moment. Mourn when you need to mourn and celebrate when you need to celebrate. Realize that all of it is moving fast and the shadow of death is ever present. But we know the one who has conquered it. We know the one that's on the other side of the shadow of death and sorrow and loss. We don't have to run from the shadow of death and sorrow and loss anymore. We can look directly at it. We can, when the time comes, brothers and sisters, hear me. When the time comes for you, you can even confidently walk directly into it. The reason 
is because we will be a people that triumphantly reemerge on the other side with the one whose name is resurrection and life. We never have to be afraid again. We're not afraid of death, sorrow, longing, loss, disappointment, because we are going to learn from it and then we're going to triumph over it with and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, we of all people are a people that can stop running. We don't have to be restless and exhausted any longer. We can stop running from sorrow and we can learn from it. And as we do, the one whose name is resurrection and life, he will give us rest for our weary souls. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. So gracious God and Father, I thank you that you're the sort of God who doesn't just invite us into an ecstatic experience outside of reality, saying that we will meet with you and experience you if and when we can attain to this emotional high, but you actually come right down into the valley of the shadow and you meet us. You rescue us. You pour out love and wisdom on us. I pray that we would be men and women who are fearless and who are at rest, walking in wisdom and real gladness with perspective about what matters most. I pray your richest blessings on the community of Woods Edge even today. And God, that you would deliver us into a place where we learn the lessons from sorrow and disappointment and we walk in confidence with the one who is resurrection and life. Jesus, you're our hero and our hope and it's in your name that we pray, amen.